and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 180, Revenge is Best Served in Cold Water. Last time, we covered the amazing rescue of baby Jesse Roper, born on a life raft off the North Carolina coast. As the story was told in local newspapers in early April of 1942, another article covered the Navy's latest success against Hitler's U-boats. The headline read, Navy Sinks Three More Axis U-Boats in the Atlantic. The subtitle below read, Hero of Sighted Sub Sank Same Does It Again. It was about the Navy pilot, aviation machinist, mate, first class, Donald Francis Mason, who apparently had sunk his second enemy sub on March 15th, southeast of St. John's, Newfoundland. And with the sinking, the U.S. Navy said 28 German subs had been sunk since the U.S. came into the war. Not that this number could be substantiated, but it made the American people feel good. But going back to Mason, his first sinking had been back on January 28th, again just southeast of Newfoundland. Mason and his crew aboard a Hudson bomber, had been patrolling for two hours when suddenly a periscope was spotted with the water churning behind it. Right away, Mason dropped the bomber to get into attack position. Coming up behind the sub, two depth charges were dropped, 25 feet above the sea, while the plane had slowed down to 165 knots. The explosions lifted much of the sub out of the water, but then it went back down this time all the way. A few minutes later, oil rose to the surface, and this went on for about 10 minutes, to which Mason banked the plane and returned to base at Argentia, Newfoundland. While on the flight back home, Mason needed to inform headquarters of his success. However, the Navy had ordered that all communications be succinct as possible. Therefore, Mason sent the following. 82-P-9 calling, sighted sub, sank same. And just like that, another catchphrase had entered the American lexicon. Of course, this would not have been possible if the Navy had not released the details of the sinking. And they only did this for PR value. The truth is, it's highly doubtful that 28 enemy subs had been sunk by this point. Certainly, the vast majority could not be confirmed. At the very least, Admiral Donitz, during Operation Polkenschlag, had only sent over five subs in the first wave of January, and they had all returned home. Either way, the Navy had a hero on its hands. One of their own had sunk two enemy subs, supposedly. So in June of 1942, Mason, with a dozen or so other heroes, were paraded around the country, from New York to Hollywood. However, again, it's certainly plausible that Mason did not sink the sub and that the Navy PR department came up with the short, catchy phrase. This is not to discredit Mason or the U.S. Navy, but as the saying goes, all's fair in love and war. On a far less loftier plane, the crew of the USS Jesse Roper left Norfolk Naval Operating Base on April 2nd, feeling gloomy. 
they were back at it and were certainly not in the newspapers or sitting next to Betty Grable, who would soon be the most famous pinup girl in the United States, with five million of her pictures sent to GIs. That's who Mason was sitting next to. However, as the roper cast off, the captain read out a Western Union telegram from the father of baby Jesse Roper. It read, May I express to you, your officers and personnel, in behalf of my family and myself, our deepest appreciation for the splendid reception and all kindnesses shown to them. You are the finest example of the gallantry and bravery of the U.S. Navy. And on that very same day, somewhere off the North Carolina's Outer Banks, sat U-85, led by Oberlieutenant Zerse Eberhard Greger. The reason this is significant is that U-85 was the same sub that Mason had supposedly sunk off the Newfoundland coast back in January. To be sure, U-85 had been damaged by Mason, but the crew and sub survived and went back to France for repairs. All the while, the sub crew had no idea that Mason was now famous for sinking them. As for Captain Gregor, This was his third patrol while commanding. During the first, he had achieved nothing. The second, he and his had sunk two merchant marines. And now into his third, he knew he had to score quickly. Admiral Donitz would not hesitate to replace him. But the remedy seemed obvious. The fine hunting grounds just off the North Carolina coast. But success seemed to elude the 46-man crew of U-85. They left France on March 21st, and Donitz ordered them straight to the American coast. But right away, Gregor was put under pressure. Just three days later, on March 24th, a message from Donitz to all of his subs read that Captain Moore and U-124 had already sunk 13 ships, totaling 80,000 tons. And there had been more, but Captain Moore was unable to confirm these. Seventeen days later, another message came from Donitz that Captain Top had sunk 31 ships, totaling 208,000 tons. Gregor knew it was now or never. It was at this moment that U-85 was 300 miles from the American coast. Three days later, April 13th, With U-85 north of Cape Hatteras, it ran into the Norwegian vessel Cudson, which had left New York and was making for Cape Town. Gregor, excited, launched two torpedoes at the unsuspecting and unescorted ship, which quickly went down with all hands. Gregor and company cheered. A good start. That same day, April 13th, the USS Jesse Roper headed out of Chesapeake Bay with her newly installed state-of-the-art radar. Her destination was the graveyard of the Atlantic. By midnight, the Roper was just northeast of Hatteras Island with Ensign Tabo in command of the middle watch. Just minutes into the watch, the radar operator saw a solid object appear on his screen, about a mile and a half off the starboard bow. Now, this blob could have been anything, 
a fishing trawler, a patrol boat, or, yes, an enemy sub, which is why the regulations state that it must be reported. So, this was passed on to Tabo, and he ordered the destroyer to head in that direction. As the roper started closing in, the sound operator heard a propeller coming from the blob. The destroyer continued to approach the suspicious object. A few minutes later, lookouts on the destroyer spotted the blob's wake, as in whatever it was, was churning the water below the surface, which then rose to the top. Clearly, it was not a fishing vessel or the Coast Guard. With this, Lieutenant Commander Howe and his EO, Lieutenant Williams Vanos, was awakened. The roper's speed was increased to 20 knots, but in order not to scare whatever was out there, the destroyer's coast was not directly behind the blob. Just then, the contact began to turn east in a large arc. Yes, it had been getting closer to the coastline, but it was now heading for a patch of deeper water, which is exactly what an enemy sub would do in this situation, to lay low. The roper continued to follow. But all questions as to what the blob was was cleared up at 12.34 a.m., now April 14th, when a torpedo streaked right at the destroyer. As the roper was doing 20 knots and intently following the blob, they were caught off guard for a second. What could have been a disaster, a repeat of the USS Jacob Jones, did not actually happen as the torpedo passed by 50 yards off the roper's port side. 50 yards, when being a lookout on the destroyer, is not a great distance. Everyone on board sighed a breath of relief. Now that the enemy had declared itself, the uncertainty was over. The destroyer's klaxon was activated. Auga! Auga! This was followed by a voice over the loudspeakers. This is not a drill. This is not a drill. General quarters, general quarters, all hands, man your battle stations. This is not a drill. As the men ran to their stations, they caught enough words to know that they had barely survived a torpedo attack. On the other hand, they were actually chasing a German sub, a first for the patrols off the American East Coast. Fear mixed with excitement. With the chase on, the destroyer closed in on the sub. 1,000 yards, 500 yards, 300 yards, which is when the sub turned hard to starboard. Clearly, the sub captain was trying to line up a shot, but the destroyer's crew was too quick canceling out each move that the enemy made. As this was clearly not going to work, the sub tried something else. During all this time, the lookouts on the destroyer had been using their 24-inch searchlight to seek out the enemy, should they surface. And that's exactly what happened. Giving up on using a torpedo, the sub would now rise and use its lone 88 deck gun to sink the roper. The destroyer crew was no less safe by the big gun. Down in the sub, Captain Gregor knew he had made a mistake. By approaching the coast this soon in his hunt, he had removed himself from the deeper waters. As things stood now, he was a good hour away from a solid place to hide, and he and his did not have an hour. 
the enemy destroyer was on him. And where he was now meant that the seafloor was only 100 feet deep, not enough to get away from the destroyer's depth charges. And the stern torpedo that he had let loose, which barely missed the roper, had been his last fish from the rear of the sub. He had to either turn around and point his sub at the enemy or use his deck gun. And the destroyer's ability to stay out of his line of sight had decided his next course of action. When the klaxon had sounded, a few of the mess crew ran to their station of the number five gun. There they saw a shape in the water, which was clearly man-made. One member thought it was an e-boat, a World War I-era patrol boat. Yes, that's how desperate the Navy was in 1942. But his assistant felt in his bones that it was a German sub. However, his brain thought, that's not possible. As he later stated, it surprised everyone because we always felt that finding one in that space of sea was going to be all but impossible. It didn't surprise us when we were convoying to make contact with submarines, because that's what they were after. But to be able to find one just running up and down the coast, that was a surprise. And at this moment, it was more than just a battle of wills or strength. Those days of warfare were over, thanks to technology. What also had to be considered were the vessels each group of men were conveyed in. First, the sub could turn sharper than the destroyer, and indeed, it was currently using that ability to try to align its bow with the ship to let loose its torpedoes. Next, the destroyer had ten deck guns, whereas the sub had four one artillery, and two multi-purpose machine-slash-anti-aircraft guns. The Roper could launch six torpedoes, the sub, four. But the destroyer's ace was its dozens of depth charges. The question was, could it get into position, which went back to the sub having a sharper turning radius? Hence, this contest would come down to skill, anticipation, timing, and of course, Lady Luck. Again, U-85 turned hard to starboard. Following, the destroyer did too. And though she could not turn as tight, the surface vessel was faster, so used that to compensate. As this cat-and-mouse game continued, or rather cat-and-cat game, as the sub's 88-deck gun could easily sink the destroyer, the Roper's searchlights continued trying to keep their lights on the serviced sub. And now that they had her, it was time to open fire. The way things worked out, the number three, 3-inch three slash 50 caliber gun on top of the galley deckhouse got the first shot. Lieutenant Commander Howe had ordered all guns to open up when the opportunity presented itself. So the number three gun crew worked together to take aim probably said a collective prayer, and fired. A click was the only response, as the gun misfired. For whatever reason, the ammunition failed, and the projectile was still sitting there in the breach. Disappointed, but reacting quickly, the crew started clearing the gun, but this would take time. Next, the 3-inch fifty caliber gun on the ship's starboard side was loaded, took aim, 
and fired. Click went this gun as well. While this sad story was playing out, the machine gun near the number three gun also failed, also misfiring due to primer failures. The various gun crews, not to mention the ship's brass, were starting to panic, for surely the German gun crew hovering over their 88 was also preparing to fire, and the destroyer was a much bigger target. As the crews cleared their guns, their officers tried to help by yelling, Fire! 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 Of course, with some choice curse words thrown in. But the process was the process. Nothing could speed that up. The question was, who would fire first? During all this, Sub-Commander Gregor was atop his conning tower, wondering why the American vessel had not taken a shot yet, with half of his brain while the other half was thanking the god of war. Either way, the 88 was almost ready to fire, and the destroyer's searchlight would make this much easier. All the Germans had to do was fire at the waterline directly below the light, and that would be that. As one gun after another failed on the destroyer, Chief Boatswain's mate, Jack E. Wright, was watching over one of his trainees trying to fire the number one 50 caliber machine gun. Alone, this gun could not sink the sub, but it could certainly bring death to those Germans who were trying to get their big gun ready. But after a few seconds of the machine gun jamming time and again, Wright snapped and pushed the younger man out of the way. Yes, it was the Navy's way to teach and to not do a job for someone else, but the entire crew's lives were in the balance. Clearing the gun the correct way, Wright took aim, the destroyer's searchlight made this relatively easy, and opened fire. Right away, some of the Germans around the 88 started falling. Others either jumped overboard or ran behind the conning tower. Regardless, progress on firing the 88 was halted. Right before this, Gregor knew, as he had talked about it often enough with his crew, is that he either sank the destroyer or he would have to scuttle his sub and then surrender and take his chances as a POW. And it looked like the former was no longer an option. With this being the case, he started screaming from the top of the conning tower, All men from the boat! Out! Get out! All hands out! Quick! Scuttle the... And that's as far as he got. Near the stern of the roper, coxswain Harry Heyman, who had just been made gun captain of the number 5 3-inch 50 caliber gun days earlier, was almost ready to fire. He stopped for a moment as he had never been in charge when the gun was actually fired, and he wondered why the other guns were not letting loose. Still, the order to fire, again with many choice curse words, had been given, so that is what he was going to do. His crew worked together to take aim, and when all was ready, Heyman yelled, Fire! The projectile, which travels 2,700 feet per second, went straight into the sub, making contact less than a second after it was fired, right below the waterline, at the base of the conning tower. With the hole that had just been created, the sub wasted no time in starting to sink. 
The blast had lifted Captain Gregor and those around him up and over the side. However, even before their feet left the metal sub, their bodies had already been shredded by shrapnel. Gregor and company were dead before they hit the water. As for the men still in the sub, remember Gregor had not finished his sentence to abandon ship, the men panicked and ran and fought each other to get up the ladder. Some made it, some did not, as the sub slanted downward, beginning its latest dive. Not taking any chances, Lieutenant Commander Howe ordered a torpedo readied, but before it could be launched, the sub was gone, having went under stern first. However, there seems to be some confusion by those on the destroyer whether the sub was sunk or whether it went down on its own. As such, Lieutenant Commander Howe could not take a chance with the lives of his crew, so sent out depth charges. Now, the Roper had already passed by several surviving German crew members to get into position, and the Americans knew those men in the water were about to be killed by the coming explosions. But risking the destroyer's men by hoping the Germans were not faking it was not a risk Howe could take. The explosions went off where the sub had gone down, and when the Roper went back for the survivors, the destroyer found only floating bodies. This entire exchange, from the moment the Roper had detected the sub, which Donald Mason had supposedly sunk months earlier and was now being fetted across America, had taken 46 minutes. And though U-85 had been stumbled upon, the actions after that moment, carried out by the crew of the USS Jesse Roper, had determined this outcome. Hence, the first German sub had finally, really, been sunk by the U.S. Navy since the U.S. joined the war after Pearl Harbor. And not to put too fine a point on it, the USS Jacob Jones and her crew had been avenged, as had those lost from the city of New York, not to mention the other lives taken by U-85. Needless to say, few aboard the Roper slept that night. Such was their adrenaline. At 1.30 a.m., the Roper sent a message to 5th Naval District Communications at Norfolk. It was much less pithy than Mason's sighted sub sank same message. It read, We hit sub with gunfire, and sub went down. Also dropped one depth charge. There were about 25 men in the water about 10 minutes ago. I don't think the sub will surface again, but she might be able to. Which was an honest assessment of the overall situation. And as the Germans were known, this the Americans had learned from the British Royal Navy, that some German subs worked in pairs, Roper did not stop to look for enemy survivors, just in case a second sub took advantage of the Roper when she stopped. At 3.45, another message was sent from the Roper. Roper reports she sighted sub, engaged with gunfire. Sub crew abandoned ship, and sub apparently sank. Made two runs, dropping death charges. We'll stand by until daylight and endeavor to pick up survivors. At 7 a.m., German survivors, dead or alive, could now be seen. 
So two Navy aircraft were sent to the location to help look. Once more, the Roper sent out its whaleboat and captain's gig to speed up the search. In time, 29 German sailors were found, all dead. When the bodies were stacked, literally stacked on the deck of the Roper, the Americans realized that the Germans were not supermen, men who had filled the Americans' nightmares. No, they were young, some had beards, and those that did not would not have looked out of place aboard an American vessel. This was the beginning of the disappearing of the fear that the Germans had engendered in their American enemies. The bodies were taken back to land and searched. Two of them had diaries on them, which was against the German rules, but it allowed the Navy intelligence to confirm that, one, this was U-85, and two, this was the same vessel supposedly almost sunk by Donald F. Mason on January 28th. On April 15th, the 29 German sailors were buried at Hampton National Cemetery, Virginia, with all honors. As for the Roper and her crew, they painted a silhouette of a German U-boat on one of their smokestacks, were not invited to a ticker tape parade, did not get to meet Betty Grable, but instead headed back out to sea, off the North Carolina coast, with a log entry that simply read, Steaming as before.